Thank you for tuning in to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. You're about to hear a live sermon, which was recorded at our 11 a.m. contemporary service. We are thrilled to share it with you. Thank you for listening. This morning, we are going to wrap up our sermon series that we've been working on all summer, where we've been looking at the Gospel of John in the different I am statements, the different ways that Jesus has identified himself all throughout the Gospel of John. This morning, we are going to look at the Gospel of John, where Jesus finally admits that Jesus is king. And so what does that mean for Jesus to be king? We're going to look in the Gospel of John, but before we do that, before we read the scripture together, let's go to God in prayer. Let's pray. Holy God, we give you thanks for bringing us together. Lord, for this time to come together and worship and be in your word Lord, that all these years after these words were pinned to a page, God, that they still speak to us and impact who we are. And so we pray that this encounter with you would be so powerful that we cannot walk away unchanged. In your holy name we pray, amen. All right, we're going to be in the 18th chapter. I'm going to start at verse 28 and read through the beginning of verse 38. So I invite you to listen now for the word of the Lord. Then they, and they, by the way, are the the Jewish religious leaders. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid any ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, then take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, for I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked him, what is truth? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am certain you're probably familiar with the the game show Family Feud, where they go out and they survey 100 people. Then they gather families together and they have to come up with what would this group of 100 people, how would they answer the question? Several years ago on one of the episodes, the question was, when someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? Survey says, two people, the Burger King. Three people, Martin Luther King Jr., Seven people, we did get seven people that said God or Jesus, but of course, 81 people, like I'm sure you thought in your head, 
said Elvis Presley. I have to tell you, my feelings were a little bit hurt because the Lion King and Richard Petty, the NASCAR King, neither one of them got a shout out. And those were important kings to my childhood, so I felt like they needed some kind of love in the king category. But politically, Americans have always pushed back on this idea of a king. We don't believe that one person should have that kind of authority, and so our government wasn't set up anywhere like a monarch would be. And so when we use the term king now, when we talk and, and say something is the king, we're highlighting that which we really like the most at the moment. Whatever it is that we're going to celebrate in this particular time. So if we're going to really understand how impactful and subversive this passage is that we read this morning, we have to really think about what is it that the, the people who were living in those Bible times, what would they have meant by the term king? We have to really get into what did the political situation look like for Jesus and Pilate to know how significant this conversation really would have been. So let me tell you about Pilate. Pilate was kind of that quintessential stereotype that we have in our heads when it comes to politicians. He's willing to play the game in order to get what he wants. For Pilate, the truth is fluid. It kind of depends on his mood or the weather or what he happens to want at that particular moment. And to make matters worse for Pilate, it turns out he's actually a political pawn. He was put in place by Caesar in order to enact Caesar's laws and enforce what Caesar wanted enforced. Pilate didn't even get to pick his, his assignment. He had been assigned to the boondocks of Palestine instead of a more prestigious city where he might have felt more powerful. So maybe this is what made him such a brutal man. Or it could be the fact that Caesar is no benevolent ruler himself, there are lots of rumors of times that Caesar would have executed his own people on his staff because he heard that they might be guilty of treason. The bottom line is that Pilate knows you're either Caesar's friend or you're Caesar's corpse. I suspect most of us are not in a place where we have to either carry out someone else's orders or we have to face the possibility of death. But I do wonder if we still operate under some sense of some other influence in our lives. I wonder if we feel some sort of oppression and that, that drives some of our decision-making, making some of the things that we do, some of the ways that we carry out our lives. I will tell you that even at this many years old, I am still desperate to please my parents and have their approval in everything that I do. I'm very aware of the fact that we live in a culture where many people struggle with anxiety and depression. All too often, I sit with people who feel that their children's diagnosis, that that's not what they planned for their lives. That there's all of these things that hang over our lives one way or another, and they influence who we are and how we go about making decisions. And so while I don't think it's Caesar himself driving any of us, I am convinced that each of us has something in our lives that has a little bit or even maybe a lot of power over us. That there's a sense of fear or uncertainty or helplessness that, that dictates how we make decisions and how we live our lives. 
And so I wonder how often do we feel like a pawn in our very own lives? Much like Pilate. Now, one of the things that you need to know about Pilate is he doesn't actually live in Jerusalem. He's come to town because Caesar sent him. It's Passover, and Caesar wants to make sure someone's there to babysit the Jews, that they don't get too excited and decide to make some sort of political statement. They need to be kept under control. Now, Pilate would have arrived in Jerusalem on the day that we now identify as Palm Sunday, which is interesting because we know that that's the same day Jesus would have arrived in Jerusalem. And so on the same day, when both of these men are coming into town, it's Jesus that the people are celebrating. It's Jesus that they're crying out that he's the king, that he's the Messiah. Finally, someone can save us from our oppression. They can save us from the captivity of the Romans. And they sing their songs and they dance their dances and they wave their branches in the air. They're living their best lives because Jesus the king is here. The thing is, as the week goes on, the people begin to question, is this the king? Is the king here? Because he, he doesn't come to town and do what powerful and victorious kings do. He doesn't come and march on the establishment. He doesn't burn the flag in righteous anger. Jesus doesn't fight back. Instead... Instead, this week when Jesus comes to town to announce his kingness, he goes to dinner with his friends. And while they're at that dinner, he gets down on his knees on the floor and he begins to wash the dirt off his friend's feet the way that a servant would do. And then after dinner, he holds his friends close and and he declares his love and affection for them and he reminds them that he abides in them and they abide in him And he reminds them that they're united and connected and that there's nothing that can happen that will break that connection. And then he prays for them. His beautiful, heart-wrenching prayer. And he prays for them and he he tells them about how much God loves them. And and he reminds them in the prayer that God loves them and that they're all connected and and they're all one. And and it's such a joy to be part of this amazing and connected family. They have this beautiful time together. And we wonder, what does that look like? What does it look like for a king to do this? Every once in a while, I tell you all stories about that clergy group that I'm in, the group that meets once a month. And and I've told you before that I've had a hard time connecting with them in the beginning But very early on, when our group was first starting to meet, I found myself in a very difficult position personally. You see, the senior pastor search committee of the Roswell Presbyterian Church had just announced that they had a candidate, that they were ready to announce to the congregation for the congregation to vote on the name. So the Monday before that Sunday, when the committee was to announce, we had our meeting, our clergy meeting. And at the end of the meeting, the leader said, does anyone have a prayer request? I said, actually, I have one. And so I began telling him about the day that's coming up and how we're going to find out who the new senior pastor of the church is going to be. I'm going to find out who my new boss is going to be. And as I'm sharing all of these things, I'm explaining to everybody how a Presbyterian church works, and, and I begin telling them all of the things that are happening on Sunday, and all of a sudden, 
all the emotions. I feel all the emotions. Because what I realize as I'm explaining, them to, explaining all of this to them is, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about who this new person is going to be. What if I don't like working with this person? What if this person has a different vision for how things need to be done? What if this person wants to change something? What if this person wants to change everything? And then on top of that, I realize that I have my own grief to deal with as well. Because no matter what name that committee is going to say, they are not going to say the name of the person who was a senior pastor when I started here. They're not going to name the person that has been my mentor this whole time. They're not going to name the person that taught me what it looks like to be a pastor. And so while what we know now, while today I can stand here and tell you I was delighted over the name that they, that they announced. I, I adore working with the senior pastor that's here, but at that moment, I didn't know anything. All I knew was that I didn't know that everything was uncertain and I was filled with grief and anxiety and fear. And so I lay this all out for the group. And as I do, I feel my chin start doing that quivery thing. I didn't know the group that well and I definitely didn't want to cry in front of them. So I do that thing that people do when they need to get a lot of words out but they don't want anyone to know they're crying. I drop all punctuation and talk as fast as I can. This is a big deal. We don't know what's going to happen and it's going to be a big change. I really appreciate you praying. It's good. Thank you. Like as fast as I can. The room is quiet and I put my head down to try and hide the tears that are starting to collect in my eyes. And I hear the leader of our group say, you know what, let's just stop right now and pray for Lindsay and the Roswell Presbyterian Church. So there's that moment of breathing while everyone gets into prayer mode, but I don't lift my head. And I hear the leader begin to pray, holy God, she says. And as she begins to pray, I feel a set of arms envelop me. And then I feel someone grab my arm. And I feel someone lay their hand on my head. And it was then that the sobs came. And the more the sobs shook me, the tighter that they held on to me, and the more that I was afraid of what was to come, and the more that I was grieving over what had been, the tighter that they held on to me. They held on to me and they showed me what love and mercy and grace looked like. And they reminded me what it looks like to be part of a family of God. They reminded me what it looks like for us to abide together. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, they held me. And that, y'all, that is what Jesus did that week when he was in Jerusalem showing people what it looks like to be king. That he gathered around his disciples, he held them, he held them physically and spiritually and mentally, and he reminded them that we are a family. And he showed them love and mercy and grace because that's what a king does. Indeed, the whole week wasn't about righteous anger at all, but an intimate and personal proclamation of love and mercy and grace. But let's be honest. 
Let's be honest, you can't win with love and mercy and grace. You need power, and, and you need people to know that you have power, and you gotta, you got to flex that every once in a while so that they'll know that you have power. And let's be frank, the people aren't seeing a whole lot of flexing while Jesus is busy having his love fest all week long. Clearly, he can't be the king they thought he was. So they begin to turn on him, and they take him to Pilate, And they take him to Pilate because the high priest can certainly punish him within the church. But Pilate's a political leader. Pilate can rule for the death penalty. (laughs) And when Pilate hears that Jesus is going around telling people he's the king of the Jews, his ears perk up. King? No. He declares, that's not going to work. Pilate is already working hard enough to exercise his own power. That He doesn't need some crazy man running around telling everybody that he's stronger and more powerful than Pilate. So Pilate turns to Jesus and he asks him point blank, are you the king of the Jews? There's a pastor named John Orberg who says this about the moment that Pilate questions Jesus. It's an intensely dramatic moment. Jesus may still go free if he'll just say no, if he'll assure Pilate that he is no threat to Caesar. This was the question that had hung over Jesus' his entire ministry. Ironically, any day before this, when all Jesus had to do one time was say, yes, I'm the Messiah, all of Israel would have risen up in arms and died for Jesus. As recently as Palm Sunday, the chance lay open for him. But Jesus would never claim the title. Now, when there are no crowds to rally to him, when he's in the hands of Pilate, where there is no chance of an army rising to defend him, when there's no chance of his being misinterpreted as a military figure, now, when it's too late for him to be saved, Jesus says, yes. Yes, that's me. It is as you say, I'm the one they've been waiting for. I am their king. Jesus doesn't know what's going to happen. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. And Pilate pronounces the sentence. But Pilate doesn't want to pronounce it. What motivates Pilate throughout is probably a combination of concerns over career and public safety, of political maneuvering and sheer survival. But even though he's technically legally in charge, he doesn't want the crucifixion to happen. And then Orberg asks this question. So who's really making it happen? And that's the question. That's the question that we're wrestling with this morning, right? Who is really making it happen? That's how we understand where the authority is coming from. That's how we understand and figure out who's really king. Well, there's Pilate, who was in Jerusalem under Caesar's order to demonstrate the oppression of the Roman Empire. And then there's Jesus, who freely came to town, acknowledging that entering this city would cost him his life. There's Pilate, who lived his life out of fear and whose rule indicated terror to everyone around him. And there's Jesus, who offers peace even in the midst of terror and whose rule promises an eternal kingdom of peace. There's Pilate, who was manipulated by the crowd who served him to accomplish the earthly and fickle desires of the crowd. And then there's Jesus, who willingly accepted the betrayal of the ones he loved as an indication of his strength of love for them. The scripture is clear. Jesus is in charge. 
It's not Pilate. It's Jesus in every sense of the word that Jesus is king. He's bigger than Pilate. He's bigger than Caesar. He's bigger than the revolting crowd. Jesus is king and Pilate knows it. And if we were to keep reading through the Gospel of John, and we read into the next chapter, into chapter 19, Pilate makes a sign to hang over the cross. The sign says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of Jews. Now, all four Gospels tell us about this sign that Pilate hangs over the cross to mockingly declare Jesus as King. But the Gospel of John tells us something that other Gospels do not. The Gospel of John tells us the story about how Pilate makes the sign and the chief of priests goes to Pilate and says, you need to fix this sign. The sign should actually say, this man says he is the king of the Jews. But Pilate looks at the chief priest and he says this, what I have written, I have written. And hangs the sign just as it is. As Pilate's last act in the drama of the crucifixion, Pilate himself declares the true authority of Jesus. Pilate himself bows to the kingness of Jesus. And then after Jesus is tortured and hung on the cross, they tear the clothes off of him, and Scripture declares that Jesus declares it is finished, and he bows his head, and it says Jesus gave up his spirit the Greek word for that verb, to give up, is paradidomi. And in that particular place, that verb is in the active tense, which means the subject, Jesus, is the one who did the action. He gave up his spirit. When it came to the crucifixion, when it came to the actual death of Jesus, it wasn't Pilate, it wasn't the angry crowds, it wasn't the Roman government who determined what would happen to Jesus. It was Jesus. It was King Jesus who would give up his spirit as the indication of the depth of his love and mercy. It was then, in that moment, when Jesus hung on the cross and chose to give up his spirit and die a brutal death, it was then that Jesus lived into the full demonstration of being king. Jesus chose not only to spend his time teaching and healing and going to dinner with those whom he loved, but he sat in the dirt and washed the grime off their feet, and he held them tight to remind them of how powerfully they were connected. And then that king of kings chose to walk into suffering on our behalf. And then he hung on a cross and gave up his very own spirit. Y'all, that, that is what it means for Jesus to be king. And on a day like today, we need to know that Jesus is king. On a day like today, when it feels like chaos is winning, a day when things that we never could have believed would ever happen have become a reality, a day when our country is grieving. Because yesterday there was a mass shooting at the El Paso Walmart, and then 14 hours later there was another shooting in Dayton, Ohio. And we grieve and we sob because we need to know that we have a king who is big enough to come alongside us and hold us when we shake. 
We need to know we have a king who can walk into our suffering and somehow, please, dear Jesus, redeem it. I'm not trying to make a political statement this morning on what needs to happen, but I do believe that the people of Jesus have something to say about this. I believe that we can boldly proclaim what it looks like to live not under the oppression of fear, that we have a king who is bigger than that fear. And our faith calls us then to take a stand and live in a way that allows us to live out love and mercy and grace because, y'all, that that's what our king taught us. And that's who we are. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks because you have loved us in a way that our brains cannot even begin to comprehend. You have walked alongside of us and you have demonstrated what it means to be king and not just a trend of the moment, but Lord, a a king who walks even into suffering because you love us so desperately. So God, be with us that we would be the people who serve you the king, faithfully. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. If you'd like more info about Roswell Presbyterian Church, check out our website at roswellpres.org.